Are you ready? Good morning and welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. This program is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. The presenter is on the scientific advisory board for Artivion and is a consultant for Endospan Inc. These relationships do not influence today's presentation. To claim CME credits for today, answer the survey evaluation. If you are on Zoom, the link will be put into the chat. If you have a question for the presenter, please type it into the chat section and we will read it at the end. For those of you attending in person, you will receive the link at the end of the presentation. And now Dr. Samity, President of Georgia Heart, will introduce Dr. Leschnauer. Thank you. Okay, let's get these glasses on. 
Well, good morning. Um, it's great to see everyone. I know we have quite a few people uh, on virtually, so thank you all for joining um, Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. Um, and um, I just want to share with you that today is um, the first of probably, um, well, I would say the first, but it's, I think, our fifth cardiovascular Grand Rounds since we kick things off. Um, and I was just telling Dr. Leschnauer that we've had some amazing speakers. Dr. Spencer King was here and um, Nihal Mehta, Jamie Burkle, and um, many others. And so it's, with, it's a huge honor and privilege to present um, a, a great friend and a phenomenal cardiovascular surgeon, Dr. Brad Leschnauer, who's going to talk to us today about cutting-edge surgical options for aortic disease. As you can see, Dr. Leschnauer is currently the Director of Thoracic Aortic Surgery and Associate Professor of Surgery at the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Emory. Um, Dr. Leschnauer comes from Texas. Um, and interestingly, he received a bachelor's degree in music from the University of Texas at Austin, um, the famed University of Texas at Austin. Um, and subsequently completed residency in general surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he then went on to do a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in the Harrison Department of Surgical Research studying myocardial ischemia reperfusion injury as a member of the Gorman Cardiovascular Research Group. Following completion of his general surgery training, Dr. Leschnauer completed cardiothoracic surgery residency at Emory um, under the tutelage of Dr. Robert Guyton, another giant in the field. Dr. Leschnauer pursued advanced thoracic aortic surgery training with Dr. Joe Bavaria at the University of Pennsylvania and endovascular surgery at the Arizona Heart Institute. Subsequently, Dr. Leschnauer joined the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Emory in 2011 as a cardioaortic surgeon. Um, as I mentioned, um, he currently heads the thoracic aortic surgery program and specializes in cardiac surgery, open and endovascular therapies. I will say in my years at Emory, I've, I've had the privilege of uh, working with Brad and um, referring many patients to him. And he is uh, an absolute terrific clinician and a phenomenal surgeon. Um, he's, uh, like most cardiac surgeons, has built us interventionalists out a lot over the years. Um, but we've, we really had an amazing relationship. Um, in addition to leading really the uh, huge aortic program, Dr. Leschnauer um, does incredible research and in understanding aortic disease, as you'll understand uh, from his talk. Um, he also, remarkably, in the midst of all this, has recently uh, gotten NIH funding uh, for R01 research in the space, which, as you know, for busy clinicians is extraordinarily challenging. So um, without further ado, uh, let me ask um, Dr. Leschauer to come out and deliver his cardiovascular brand rounds. Thanks, Thanks Habib. It's a real pleasure uh, to come out uh, to Northeast Georgia Medical Center today and talk to you about some of my uh, passionate work, as I would say. Hopefully, this will be an entertaining um, uh, talk on cutting-edge surgical options for aortic disease. Here are my disclosures. And over the next 45 minutes, we'll take a quick tour around the uh, mostly the thoracic aorta uh, to see, see what I uh, 
sort of think is what's going on in the field that's new. Um, you know, we operate mostly for aneurysm or dissections as the two main pathologies. And so starting at the root, what would I consider cutting edge root procedures in the year 2022? Um, well, most of the audience is familiar with a standard uh, root replacement. Uh, Dr. Ben Tall originally described the aortic root replacement, which is basically cutting out the pathologic aortic root tissue and then reconstructing it with a uh, valved conduit and then sewing back on the coronary arteries as seen here in the uh, cartoon. And now we have options off the shelf for valved conduits, actually a uh, Dacron graft married to a valve, either a tissue valve here, a mechanical valve here. This is the uh, full porcine root. It's actually a pig's uh, true aortic root, and there are the coronary arteries. Really, I, I still consider the most um, cutting-edge open root, uh, root procedure. There's a lot of interest in aortic valve repair these days is a valve-sparing root replacement, and there's a number of different techniques. It's named after the famous Canadian surgeon. Um, he's actually Brazilian, but spent his career in Toronto, Tyrone David, uh, who's done many, many iterations of this. But basically, he described... Uh, do, operating on patients who have aortic root aneurysms, originally young patients with connected tissue disorders with normal valves, and he would cut the uh, aortic tissue out, leave the valve in place, take a Dacron graft, seat it around the valve apparatus, and then sew the valve apparatus back into the graft and reimplant the coronaries. And this really had huge impact because you could save someone's valve, particularly young patients, it reduces the risk of endocarditis, you know, avoids a mechanical valve and all the burden of lifelong anticoagulation. And now in the current area, uh, you know, with a tissue valve in, um, sure, you have room for TAVR valve and valves, but in a young person, how many times can they have that? So if you can save someone's valve, similar to the mitral valve space, you know, it's highly desirable. And here's, you know, kind of a few pictures of how it looks. We do this a lot for connective tissue disorder patients. You can see an isolated aortic root aneurysm and then a more normal ascending. And in a, in, a, in a connective tissue disorder patient, a Marfan, you want to take out that ascending. You can do it under a clamp so that they don't have a type A dissection. You take apart the root. Here's the head, feet, and you can see now the valve looks really good. These are the coronary arteries with little catheters that we give cardioplegia to protect the heart. Then you seat your graft, and you can see this valve looks really good. It's nice and competent. And here's our final reconstruction. Here's the root and the ascending aorta. And we, uh, largely the work of my predecessor, uh, uh, Ed Chen, who's now at Duke, but I joined in with uh, building a probably the second or third largest uh, number of valve spring roots in North America. We wrote written a lot of papers about this over the years. We looked at patients who had real severe AI coming into the operation, and they did well, freedom from uh, residual AI and freedom from valve replacement at five and 10 years is upwards of 98%. We also do it in the setting of type A dissections. Patients come in and their aorta is destroyed, but their valve is clean and um, it, it can up the ante in a, in a high mortality uh, type of operation. But if you can do it, um, you really uh, gain a lot of benefit from it as, um, as we can see, and the results are good to freedom from really moderate AI and valve replacement is, is a, over 90% approaching uh, 10 years. So that's from an open standpoint. What's the cutting edge solutions 
really going on in the endovascular space. And the question is, could we replicate a root replacement without opening the patient's chest? And this is kind of crazy, but um, it's definitely on the horizon. What, what, the, what the solution would be would be to marry transcatheter valve technology with thoracic stent graft technology with branched or fenestrated endovascular technology that's usually uh, used in the abdominal aortic space, get all these techniques, and could you do it? Well, first think about the ascending aorta. This is what I consider high-priced real estate. The aortic root has the valve, the coronaries, in this little space here. So when you talk about landing stent grafts, you think about proximal and distal landing zones. If you look, go below the sinotubular junction, you can obstruct the coronary arteries or, you know, interfere with the aortic valve. If you land a stent distally, you might cover the anomaly artery and get a stroke or certainly putting a stent graft in an aorta puts a risk, particularly in the ascending aorta, for a dissection. So this bentol would now become an endobentol or myth. So is this, you see this topic a lot on conferences. Is this myth or reality? Well, I'm happy to say it's reality and I, it's not my work at all. We've thought about this, but haven't quite found the right procedure. And you would have to get a true heart team. You know, you need a, I believe a cardiac surgeon. I'll explain why uh, an interventional cardiologist who has either, um, coronary expertise and structural or get a structural guy and, and, and very well would include a vascular surgeon who does a lot of fenestrated branched work. And that's the kind of team I've thought of if we ever did this. So this uh, report, many of you have probably seen it, was put out in Jack now over a year or two ago of the first true inhuman endobentol. So let me take you through their case. This is their work. This is a 64-year-old lady who came to the emergency room, and this is from a Brazilian group, with two years of intermittent bleeding from the neck. She'd had a prior aortic valve replacement with a pericardial valve, and so when they did the CT scan, they saw this huge pseudoaneurysm from her aorta. That's what this is up here, and um, it had fistulized to her suprasternal notch. I have not seen this complication, and I hope I don't. Her aorta, as you can see, looks very heavily calcified. This is all this white. It wasn't true porcelain, but it's close. Her echo showed that her previous valve now had a gradient of almost 30 millimeters of mercury, so she had moderate AS. The heart team met, and based on her Euro score of almost 30% plus this near porcelain aorta, they said there's no way she'll survive open surgery, which is probably true. You can't get into this chest without getting into the aneurysm. So she would have to go under circa rest before you open the chest. They initially tried to occlude it with Amplatz occluders, and that's what all this, what we would say, endo trash is here. You can see that. So, so could they do it? And they did it. And here's how they did it. They had the, um, their industry create a customized valved endograft. And the design is really remarkable. So they took an expanding, self-expanding thoracic stent graft. They married it to a transcatheter valve right there. Um, so it's all in one, and it was the valves pre-mounted on the balloon. Then they had um, uh, branches already put into the graft for the, the coronary arteries that had both internal and external components, um, and they were up high. These would sit above the sinotubular junction, 
so that the operators would have space to work and the coronaries would be perfused. As you can see, it's a tapered diameter. So this part is going to go in the distal ascending order and obtain your distal seal, and the transcatheter valve would then seal at the um, aortic valve annulus. So here's some of the videos of their case. Again, not my work. They gained femoral and apical access. The coronaries were pre-wired. You can't really see it too well, but for guidance. And then they put their valve conduit in um, and unsheath the stent graft portion first with the valve as soon there. Now they inflate a balloon and blow up their transcatheter valve. Now at this point, they are using peripheral VA ECMO for hemodynamic stability to give them plenty of time to start the coronary work, which is the most time-consuming work. So next, after being on VA ECMO, <clears throat> they had the wires, they went through their branch, they cannulate the right coronary artery, and then um, deployed a self-expanding stent, which this balloon, which is this video here, and then they shoot their angiogram and they have a nice result there. Now they move on to the left. Um, here they use a balloon expandable stent, um, cannulated left coronary, expand the stent there. Videos are a little slow. And you can see they had a nice result um, with this. Again, the VA ECMO was key in providing them time and stability. Their total procedure time, 400 minutes long. Zero endoleak, the pseudo aneurysm was thrombosed, fistula closed, and at nine months, a short follow-up and no MI stroke. Patient was doing well on dual antiplatelet therapy. So, you know, this case was, a, was really a, an interesting one for the field. I think an endobental, so to speak, is an evolving reality. They hit on this ideal device, a stent graft married to a transcatheter valve already with pre-made fenestrations or branches for the coronary. These will all, I think, be customized initially, but industry is already on to this and hopefully an off-the-shelf configuration will be available in the future. I point out there was a second case that hasn't been published or is in press. This was for an aortic dissection, and the people simply took a stent graft and put large holes in the um, stent graft. They burned them for the coronaries just to make large holes. This wouldn't work for aneurysm pathology, but to seal a dissection, um, it very well would. And you, I think it's key to be able to use peripheral VA ECMO so that you have time. It provides stability and maintains coronary perfusion. So that's the route. Let's move up a little bit to uh, management of ascending aorta and arch aneurysms. Really, uh, open surgery remains the gold standard um, what is probably novel is just how we protect the brain uh, in the last five years. So briefly, aortic arch repair, uh, the outcomes depend not only on your surgical technique, but you have to think of organ protection. And first and foremost, though we're heart surgeons, is it doesn't matter if you have a beating heart if the brain is dead. So we think about brain protection a lot, obviously heart protection, and then the lower body perfusion, almost in that order. So there's multiple strategies of how we manage the circulation. It depends on where we cannulate the aorta or its arterial branches. We conduct hypothermic circulatory rest, which I'll explain that term in a second. And then the addition of if can we give blood flow to the brain during 
while we work on the arch, essentially. So uh, a brief history, Dr. Randy Grieb from New York was the first to describe the successful series of arch replacements uh, in the late 70s. And basically what he'd do for patients with arch aneurysms, he'd put them on pump, cool them down for 45 minutes or so, get their brain temperature to 18 or actually less. Sometimes he would go to 14 degrees, turn off the pump and start working as fast as he could. Cut out the arch. He uh, saved the, the, the great vessels in an island technique here. Sew on a graft and then reattach this great vessels and start the pump up. And he was only using hypothermia. The, the theory here is when you cool something down, it slows cellular metabolism. So you're on the clock. You got to be moving. So this hypothermia obviously provides cerebral and visceral organ protection by slowing metabolism down. So the, we have fortunately evolved since the, since the seventies and have gotten better results. So mostly these operations were done with femoral artery cannulation. And as I said, hypothermia alone. Fast forward today. We do these operations by cannulating a number of different areas depending on the strategies. And we've added actually blood flow to the head, either in a retrograde fashion or anagrade, giving blood directly up the carotids. Here's kind of our go-to method at Emory. Um, we sew a graft onto the right axillary artery in the delta pectoral groove here. We go on bypass there. And then when we're ready to work on the arch and do circulatory rest, we've shifted the paradigm. So now it's really just the lower body that is without blood. We don't have to cool as hard because we're giving blood through the carotids the whole time. So we put clamps on the anominate and left common carotid artery, and you can see the blood then flows down and up. And usually we just do unilateral one side. It keeps our operative field clean, uh, and it is sufficient for excellent uh, results. Here's what a hemi-arch looks like. This is the most common operation really performed for thoracic aortic aneurysms. An ascending aneurysm usually involves some period of circulatory rest. You can get that distal ascending and arch so that all the proximal aortic work is done. And we studied it in a number of different ways. Uh, our standard hemi-arch replacement now, we cool the patient to a bladder temperature of 29, 28. You're usually on pump for about 20 minutes cooling before it's time to circa rest, go cut the arch out. And we've shown in a various number of comparisons that compared to colder temperatures, um, there was no difference in our um, mortality, stroke, delirium, renal failure. And so we've proven to ourselves that really an elective hemi-arch can be done safely with a bladder temperature of 28 or 29. That is the, the bladder temperature. If you're measuring the brain, it's colder at that time, actually. So you do get hypothermia to the area where it's the most important. And these can be done in general with a, you know, 20 minute circa rest time, 25 minute, um, and done safely. We also looked at this uh, technique for more extended arch replacements when we're doing the whole thing. And really you do need anti-grade cerebral perfusion for these. And again, um, we showed, uh, this is an older paper in about 150 total arches, both an elective and emergent, that you could use this anti-grade cerebral perfusion, cooling the bladder a little colder. If we're going to do a total arch, we want that bladder temperature around 24, 25 degrees. Again, the brain, it gets to about 19. So you're cooling more for about 30 minutes before you circa rest if you're going to do more than just a hemi-arch. So that's the cutting edge open techniques. What's going on in the end of acer space? 
Well, you can look at a number of reports throughout the literature of these one-offs of treating ascending aortic pathology with stent grafts. We've published a couple ourselves. Um, this was a pseudoaneurysm, as you can see down here, and we took a stent graft, which is too long for the ascending aorta, measured it, cut it, repackaged it, and deployed it here and got a nice result. Um, that was for a pseudoaneurysm. This was for a type A sent to us. Uh, it was a retrograde type A dissection, so the tear was distal to the left subclavian, and the dissection flap went retrograde into the ascending aorta in a Jehovah's Witness that I couldn't convince to take blood. So there was no way we were going to do open surgery, and that gave us some uh, opportunity to think and create a solution, and we did um, uh, cervical debranching, which is a carotid, carotid, carotid subclavian bypass. Whenever I do thoracic stent graft work, it's a combined program with our vascular surgeons, which we've really worked well for the patients and us. So we uh, have them involved. Dr. Uh, Will Jordan helped me with this case. He did the cervical debranching. Then we stented across the arch, and he put a snorkel-type chimney stent into the innominate uh, artery, as you can see here, and that fixed the dissection um, and got an excellent result. So there's case reports, but there's no real devices approved for stent stenting the ascending aorta for aneurysms or dissections. And we're going to move into the arch here, too. So what I'm going to talk about in the next few slides is what's going on in the space. So there is currently efforts to develop stent grafts for the ascending aorta. This is from Gore. Uh, they have a trial called the ARISE trial, and they're, we are not part of that, unfortunately. And it's a short stent graft, very flexible and conformable, that they're using for type A dissection. The early feasibility trial is almost complete. We hope to join as a pivotal site so that when we have these, you know, 80, 90-year-olds or people with comorbidities, maybe they would do better with a stent. And, and it's not the panacea. I've heard and seen some of the results, um, but it is an option. It's, I don't think it's ever going to replace open surgery, particularly in the young person that can, um, that, that can tolerate an open operation, but it will be a good tool to have. Um, this is the uh, AMDS dissection stent that was um, now under the Cryolife, which is now called Artivion um, portfolio. And we are a part of this trial. We haven't put one in. But this is for the arch. So it's basically a bare metal stent that you can see here goes across the dissected arch. And is relatively easy, at least it looks like, of course, like all of these products to put in. Um, I have not put one in yet. But what you do is you, in a type A dissection, the indication is for distal malperfusion. So they come in with a type A dissection and maybe their leg is cold too due to malperfusion, and you want to open up that true lumen and not have to do some extended arch with a stent graft and this fancy work that's going to take forever and is high risk. And they've developed this bare metal stent that goes across the arch vessels. So you've replaced the, the ascending aorta, which is what's going to kill you, but the malperfusion distally still may be um, present because the true lumen isn't open. Well, this stent helps it. So you circarrest, you deploy this stent across the arch, and then it, ha it comes with a, a nice Dacron soft felt collar here, which is a sewing ring for you to sew to. And you actually cannot do a hemi-arch. You have to cut your aorta. It's almost an open distal. Um, and, and then you, you deploy the stent and then sew your graft on. 
And that um, trial is starting now. The uh, early work has been done in Canada and Europe, and it's promising. And I think this is going to be actually a tool that a lot of us use. Um, it's very, I think, straightforward. What's going on for the arch? Um, so there are two designs. There's single branch endografts and dual branch. So this is the uh, Gore thoracic branched endoprosthesis. It has a branch for a single arch vessel. And you could put this in the left subclavian or carotid or a nominate. Um, it's, we've done about five or six cases were part of the trial and it's a good device. It's very easy to use. It's all done transfemorally with a, a wire out the arm. Um, it's uh, currently in trial for aneurysms and chronic dissection. The pivotal trial is almost complete. I bet this will be available off the shelf year and a half or two. And this is a good solution. This will probably eliminate the need for carotid subclavian bypasses for a number of either dissections or it will, it will make it a historical operation, I feel. Um, now, moving to a little bit more fancy are the true um, uh, graphs that are designed for arch pathology. So this is the Nexus device. Uh, the company is Endospan, and it basically has a single branch that goes into the anomaly. So you have to do a carotid, 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 carotid subclavian bypass to revascularize the head vessels first. Then this can all be done transfemorally. Again, you have to have a wire out the arm. You deploy this first piece, and there's only a very brief period, maybe 15, 20 seconds, where that anominate may uh, be getting reduced blood flow. But then it's open, and, and, and then you add this second piece um, the blood flow is coming out the aorta and feeding everything. Once this first main body is, is, is deployed, then you add the second to get your seal in the proximal aorta. Um, we have had the, the clinical trial going on. It's called the Triumph trial. It's a pivotal trial currently enrolling for both chronic dissections, aneurysms, and then penetrating aortic ulcers and intramural hematoma. I've not done one of these cases yet, but we do have two accepted that are um, we're going to do in May, and it's promising. So the other one, the other design is then a dual branch pathology, and, and, and the real discerning factor of which design is going to work is going to be stroke data, pure and simple. This is from Terumo Aortic. It's called the Relay Branch. It has a branch for your brachiocephalic, one for the left carotid. You have to revascularize the left subclavian artery because you're covering that. It requires bilateral carotid cutdowns. Um, and basically, you deploy this initial graft. It's got um, two inner tunnels, which you then cannulate and put stents in. And I'm going to show you how this works because we have done one of these cases. So this is the ideal type of case that you don't want to do open surgery on. For these stent grafts will be a really a game changer. This is a 69-year-old female. She had an expanding 5.9-centimeter arch aneurysm. Easy to see here. Bad lungs chronic kidney disease, bad peripheral vascular disease, smoker. We've all seen these patients. She lives alone. She's not going to do well with an open surgery. This would require a left thoracotomy circa rest, probably because I don't think you could get to it from the front. And she would likely have be trached and maybe on dialysis. So we uh, enrolled her, got her accepted in the trial. And again, um, she, it's a two-stage approach. We did an aortothem bypass with a large Dacron graft to tackle her aortoiliac disease because the device wouldn't pass. And now we have a nice conduit, which we can deliver these large bore 
22 French devices. She also got a carotid subclavian bypass. We did that, sent her home two weeks later, brought her back and put the stent graft in. Now, when, so again, when you put this main body stent graft across the arch, this area is open. So you're perfusing the brain the whole time. There is no rush risk, et cetera. You then wire these two inner cannulas that are in here. There's an inner um, components. And then you put bridging stents up to the carotids and it gives you your, your uh, brain perfusion. So here's a few angios from the case. This is us deploying this stent graft across the arch. It's just crazy how long and sort of bulky this is, but very smooth, very easy. Next, we shoot our aortogram with our stent graft in place. You can see the large arch aneurysm. And the other thing that was pretty interesting is you didn't have to be that completely accurate, and I'm going to show you why. There's these little dots here, which is where this rectangle of, of perfusion to the head occurs. So now we're deploying the graft here. We use rapid ventricular pacing. You just unsheath the thing and it opens. And as you can see over here, there's these radio-opaque markers around this rectangle that provides your uh, brain perfusion. And here they are. It's a little hard to see. But here they are right here. And that's your area where you're going to cannulate for your uh, brachycephalic and carotid. So now we've, uh, we start working on the right carotid first. Now it's all neck work. Um, and our vascular surgeons were doing this with me. They cannulated the uh, tunnel, this inner tunnel for the brachiocephalic, and you can see a stent now deployed here. That's one of them. Then we move to the left side. It's complete here. So the seal for the aneurysm is high up in the brachiocephalic and left carotid. You have the stent graft here, and we got a nice result. Here's the completion angiograms. <clears throat> you can see um, no filling of the aneurysm sac. The uh, cervical vessels and, and great vessels all fill, and there's the bypass. Um, so this worked out well in our first one. Here's our, the post-op CT scans, which is really the gold standard. You can see both tunnels uh, are patent, and the aneurysm is thrombosed. So this is a very interesting device. There's the one-month uh, crazy how it looks. A lot of metal in there. But she did well. So... That's what's going on in the arch. Let's move down now to the distal aorta, the descending thoracal abdominal aorta. We still do about 25 open descending or thoracal abdominal aneurysms a year for mostly chronic dissection, um, but they're mostly young patients and because anyone really, as you get to 65, 70, it's a big hit, as we all know, to do open surgery on these patients and can we make progress with more minimally invasive endovascular approaches? Certainly for acute type B dissection that is complicated by malperfusion and rupture, in the last 10 years, really stent grafting those patients is the gold standard. And we've written several papers basically showing how you can take a dissected aorta and remodel it, convert that two lumens into one with a stent graft, um, We've shown that it's safe to stent all the way from the left subclavian down to the celiac in the initial procedure. And then the real question in the acute type B dissection space is, what about the patients that come in, they have a type B dissection, but they don't have malperfusion or rupture? And this is where uh, Dr. Samney alluded to, I have some NIH research funding. We're looking at those patients because, 
yes, you could stent them all, but not all of them will need a stent. So which ones need a stent? Because if, if they need a stent, they're going to dilate into an aneurysm in five years. They're better off stented right up front. But there's risk to that. There's stroke. There's paraplegia, even as low. There's the cost of the device. You know, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a freebie. In fact, we're, we're, there, there's a whole new avenue of research going on in terms of what the adverse effects on the heart is when you stick a stent graft in the aorta. When you do that, putting a stent graft in the aorta, it turns the aorta into a lead pipe instantly. And therefore, the afterload on the heart is really increased and you can have some adverse cardiac remodeling. But for a complicated type B, no doubt should be getting a stent graft. And here's kind of what I was talking about, the remodeling. So you put a stent from the left subclavian all the way down to the celiac. It's usually two stents. And you can see here in this cartoon here, here's pre-op. This is the mid-descending thoracic aorta. That small lumen here is the true lumen. This is what it looks like at one month. The stent is now slowly starting to expand. At six months, it's bigger. And look, at a year, the false lumen is gone. And you can really eliminate the entire false lumen in the chest in most of these patients after a year. Then you're just following a dissected abdominal aorta. And I, in my 10, 11 years um, after training, it's rare if you fix their chest that their abdominal aorta is ever going to need anything. So the real question then is what to do for these patients who didn't get a stent initially and now have a chronic dissection. They've developed an aneurysm. And now they have traditionally their only their only um, therapy is open descending or thoracal abdominal via large incisions. Um, so what are we doing in the endovascular space? Well, chronic this T-bar for chronic dissections, it's feasible. You can do it with really reasonable morbidity and mortality. If you have a limited dissection that ends above this, the celiac and you can get the primary entry and exit tears, the stent graft will cure it. So, but those are rare. Really, most of them, the dissection goes all the way down, whether this is a residual type A or a true de novo type B. We know you should cover all the false limb fenestrations, but the, the, the real thing that defeats stent graft therapy currently is retrograde false limb perfusion. And this is what we're talking about. So you lay your stent in, in the chronic type Bs. The dissection flap is much thicker and rigid, so it doesn't move over like a like I showed you in the remodeling with an acute B. So the blood flow goes down here, but there's tears throughout the abdominal aorta, distal to your stent, and the blood flow crosses over and goes back up retrograde in the false lumen and feeds this aneurysm. And so the stent alone doesn't defeat that. So how can we tackle this? Well, you can embolize the false lumen, which I'll show you, or Try and create a single lumen, a uniluminization, for lack of a better word, to create a true distal landing zone for your stent. So I'm going to show you a couple uh, strategies here. You can put coils. This is this is not my case. It's courtesy of Frank Arco, a vascular surgeon in, in Charlotte. Um, you put coils and endo trash to try and slow down the the flow in there. Or devices have been created. This is called a candy plug, which is a stent graft that actually you go in the false lumen. So the concept is you want to funnel all that retrograde false lumen perfusion into a small channel and then put a plug in it. So what these guys did here is they took a short stent graft, 
They cut it, put a collar in, so they created their funnel, so to speak. They named it a candy plug, like a Tootsie Roll, although it's a reverse Tootsie Roll. Never quite got that. They then put the, 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 this candy plug in the false lumen, creating their funnel, and put a little plug in. And you can see here it's worked well for various people. We've done it. I'll take you through this case briefly. This is a lady who came in with a, uh, an acute type B that was ruptured vessel. All that's blood in her left chest. These are emergent cases. We actually take them emergently to the OR and stent them and don't put them to sleep. Because, unfortunately, I had one that was rock-solid stable talking to me with induction of anesthesia. I went to wash my hands. I come back. There's no blood pressure. No one even knew. She was done. So we, we now with um, TAVR being done awake, we've mimicked that protocol, and it's worked out well. Um, and we published it. But basically, for ruptured type Bs, you want to stent from the left carotid, covering left subclavian all the way to the celiac. And so we did that with her, and we got her out of the hospital. But um, this is her one-month scan, and there was a lot of perfusion of the false lumen. And you can see it best on these static images. She was having a lot of back pain. Now, they all have back pain after a stent graft, but this was a little bit more, right between the scapulas, which you want to pay attention to. And I looked at the CT scan. I said, wow, that aorta is big. In fact, it's over six centimeters in a month. And it was all due to flow coming retrograde back up. The green is thrombus, but this is a, a jet of blood coming back up, feeding this six centimeter angus. So, you know, what to do here? I was pretty convinced this was not anagrade filling. It was all retrograde. I could have done a left thoracotomy, um, taken the stent graft out, and we've done it, or try a false lumen embolization, which is what we chose. You gain true lumen access I nicknamed this the Gemini procedure because I thought it looked like one of these NASA space capsules. But basically, this, this is all abdominal stent graft technology. Um, this is a aorto uniac converter um, for abdominal aneurysm work. You take this, you deploy it, flip it around, repackage it. So you're putting this narrow end up towards the head in the false lumen. Then you take this plug and put a plug in it. Again, creating a funnel creating a blind pouch and putting a plug in it. So here's the angiograms, basically the case. First, we went in and we confirmed that this was not anagrade filling in the false lumen. And this pigtail is in the, in the true lumen distal to our stent. You can see this blood flow right here start creeping up late. It's, it's slow filling, it's, it, but it's, it's, it's creating aneurysmal degeneration. So now we've deployed our stent graft, you can see here, in the false lumen. We put our plug in, and really what you want to do is put your sheath or catheter in the false lumen and shoot a picture. And what you can see here is the contrast goes up and stops where our plug is. So we felt pretty good about this, and it worked. Here's the CT scan, the false lumen's thrombosed. It's much smaller. There's the stent graft um, in the false lumen right here, just to the distal. And you can see pre-false lumen embolization, you got the huge jet. Now it's all gone. Thrombose. So it's a good technique to use. So the other strategy, and I'm going to finish with this uh, case in the next five, 10 minutes, is creating this single lumen so that the stent graft can get a seal. Um, and there's a number of ways to do it. There's what we call balloon fracture fenestration or the Knickerbocker technique. Or can you do what we would do open, which is 
create a connection between the true and false lumen by cutting out the flap. Can you do that endovascular? And there have been a number of ways that have been described. I'm going to show you our kind of novel technique. So the first is basically just fracturing the stent, uh, the dissection flap. And it's a great technique. The guy who invented it, uh, Tilo Cobell, called it the knickerbocker because he thought that somehow it looked like a pair of knickers. What you do is you put your stent graft in the chronic dissection, the true lumen. Then you take a balloon, you blow it up, and you intentionally disrupt or fracture that flap so that the covered stent graft opposes the aortic wall and the false lumen. That way, when retrograde blood flow goes back up the aorta, it stops where you meet the wall. And it's a, it's a very good technique, and it's safe. It's a little harrowing when you first do it, because as you can see, all of a sudden, boom, the balloon goes out, and you've ruptured the flap. And you're thinking, oh, my God, did I just rupture the aorta? Um, so you have to prepare everybody in the room, but eventually you get used to it. It's a cool uh, kind of uh, picture, and the hemodynamics are completely stable the whole time. So this technique does have its limitations, though, because um, you cannot control how much of that flap you're going to rupture. And does that lead to problems? Yeah, it does, and I'm going to show you one of our cases here. You can see here we're ballooning. You don't want the distal stent to expand because if you do, you'll create a new entry tear into that false lumen distally. And that's what happened in this case. The, the whole thing starts to expand here. And now when we shoot a picture, you have this just explosion of blood flow into the false lumen. So it's not outside the aorta, but now you've, you've created new anti-grade filling of the false lumen to an, to a, an already weak um, wall. This patient, after the procedure, had severe pain. We kept him in the hospital. We scanned him two or three times. His aorta grew a centimeter in about two weeks, and we had to do open operations, an open operation for him. So this is a, clearly a failure of the technique. So can we improve precision and control with an endovascular methods? The Michigan guys really tuned me on to this. They're a very smart, great group up there. They started doing uh, fenestrations of the flap to try and control where you rupture the flap. And they did it with laser, uh, endovascular laser septotomy, where they burn across the, the flap with the laser, create a hole, or a cheese wire technique. They'd get a hole. They'd get uh, catheters uh, on both sides of the dissection flap and pulled down. Well, I don't use lasers. I'm not a cheese wire guy. So could we do something else? Well, I'm a member of our structural heart uh, team at Emory. And several years ago, we learned how to do trans cable techniques. And I'm sure it's done here too. But basically, it falls under this umbrella of trans catheter electrosurgery, which is being used and evolving in the structural space. It's a fancy term to say you're going to apply external source of electrical current outside the body to electrify a small guide wire inside the body to perforate live or prosthetic tissue. As you may know, it's being used to split prosthetic valve leaflets, to split mitral valve leaflets in the, in, in the transcatheter space. And for those who aren't familiar, it's kind of crazy, the transcable technique, but it's really been revolutionary. And I was definitely a naysayer, and yet I went and learned the technique and 
Detroit, we brought it back, and I'm a true believer now. So what you do for, for transcable access for TAVR, for people who don't have good transfemoral access, is you take a catheter with a small coronary wire. You burn across the IVC using this electrocautery, create a small hole between the IVC, the wire goes into the aorta, it's snared, brought up, and then you convert to a stiffer, bigger, uh, larger bore wire. You then take your delivery system and you actually make a larger hole in the IVC or aorta. You deliver your TAVR, and then on the way out, you close it with a little plug. Sounds crazy. Sounds dangerous. It's very safe. I mean, it's shocking how well it works. So could we use this hot wire technique, is, is, is what I called it, to improve our focal dissection flap fenestration so we have more control? The answer is yes, as I'm going to show you. So this case, and this is how I'm going to uh, finish the talk, is a 52-year-old morbidly obese truck driver. He had a type A, a DeBakey 1. He got fixed, was lost to follow-up. Now he needed his DOT card re-upped. So he shows back up in clinic, five foot seven, 343 pounds, and a seven and a half centimeter descending. And we can't let this guy drive. He's going to rupture and kill somebody besides himself. Terrible operative candidate based on his body habitus, one kidney. This guy's going to be traked on dialysis. We've all seen it. So we wanted to do a, a, a stent for him. So we did a carotid subclavian bypass to optimize the proximal landing zone. Then we fenestrated him with this hot wire technique, which I'll show you, put our stent graft in and then fractured it where we did this fenestration and got a nice result that was more controlled. So on the CT scan, you're going to look for an area and it's generally right near the diaphragm where the aorta is, has to be about less than 40 millimeters. And you use your vertebral body as landmarks. You get catheters and wires in the true and false lumen. So this is our steerable catheter um, with a, a microcatheter system ready to perforate. The dissection flap is, is right here. And we have this target, this hoop right here, the snare in the true lumen. So you line up. Now you got to use bipolar, which is... For me as a cardiac surgeon, my brain doesn't work that way, but fortunately I've learned a few things. So this is how you're looking anterior, posterior, and that looks pretty good, but you have to use the biplane because you may be completely missing your hoop. You can go outside the aorta, et cetera. So when you're lined up in the lateral camera, this, you know that you've got your orientation correct. Then once you do that, you tell your uh, person, all right, three seconds, they put the, they, they press the electric artery and you carefully just advance that wire and it goes through like butter and it is safe. Even when we've missed and we've gone outside the aorta once or twice with that little coronary wire, you don't see any bleeding. So next then, once you've crossed, you then tighten your snare, advance it up the aorta. Then you're going to um, confirm that you actually have this. This is intravascular ultrasound. You can see this wire here crossing from the false lumen to the true. There's this nice fenestration you've made. You switch to a stiffer wire. And now you're going to create your, your um, fenestration with a balloon. So this is a 28 uh, millimeter balloon. <clears throat> it's across the dissection. You see a neck and then bam, it opens up. Now you've created a nice 
hole in that dissection flap. And this is what it looks like on IVIS real time. You just see this balloon blow up and rupture that flap. Now you lay your stent in after that work, and then you do your knickerbocker, you balloon it, and now it is a focal expansion of that stent. It doesn't just rip the entire way. Um, we did our false lumen angiogram. You can see the contrast goes up to where the stent graft opposes the wall and stops. And we got a nice result. Here's the arterial phase of the CT scan. This is calcium, really, but there's thrombus. And right there, you can see the stent graft oppose the wall. And we did a delayed venous to show there was no late filling as well. So in summary, cutting-edge solutions for aortic disease is really the endo approach is what's really going on that's going to move the field forward. Stent grafts have crept up from the abdominal aorta where it's easy as straight pipe and started into the branched abdominal descending. It's making its way over to the arch and the ascending. You know, my crystal ball, I do think the endobental will become more of a reality in the, in the next three to five years, but it's going to be hard. That is hard stuff. You got to have a team to avoid coronary ischemia. As I mentioned, you got to use VA ECMO. I think stent grafts will play a role for inoperable type A's. The industry needs to provide larger diameters. Currently, the largest diameter stent grafts are 46 millimeters. We really need 50 to really tackle a lot of that. It's not going to work. Arch pathology, these stent grafts, I think in, the, in, in another 18 months, certainly I think the gore is going to be the first one to hit the shelf first. The, the, the true success will be based on stroke outcomes. It's being heavily scrutinized when you put wires and, 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 and catheters in the carotids, you're going to knock stuff loose. The real question is in those trials is how we define a stroke. Because if you MRI everyone, they're going to have little hits. But what does that mean? A lot of these are silent strokes. And as I showed you, a chronic distal dissection is going to depend on some novel devices for the false lumen and techniques. So I'm going to stop there, entertain any questions. I really appreciate the invitation for coming to talk today. Thank you. Take the microphone. Wow, that was an amazing tour de force talk. Um, let me see if there are any questions from the audience. And um, I know, Suzanne, we've probably got some virtual questions coming in as well. So feel free to chime in. Hey, Brad. Thank you for coming. Enjoyed your talk for sure. I got a, uh, three questions, basically. We kind of are in the uh, dissection belt, as I call it up here. We do a lot of dissections. We've made an informal policy of trying our very best not to operate on someone 80 years of age and older. Kind of wanted your opinion on that, number one. Number two, over the last year or two, we have been trying our best to do a lot of uh, valve repairs, aortic valve repairs. We're utilizing the heart ring. What are y'all's experience with that? And then number three, with all this new technology, all those devices are very expensive, as you and I both know. You add on um, VA ECMO, you got to be, you know, you're spending a lot of money. I just want to know your thoughts on that and the future there. Thanks. The the octogenarian with the type A is always tough. Um, 
it's cliche to say, but I, I look at everyone individual. Um, you know, I've had partners turn down 86 year olds that I went and saw and got through, um, surgery. So I think you can't write them off as we've learned with Taver. Everyone's different. So uh, I, I, I would, I would look at anybody octogenarians for type A's individually. I think the stent grafts could help in that population. The valve repairs, I think, is absolutely key. So I applaud the use of the heart ring. I haven't used it. It's intriguing. I just haven't. Um, I got to make the commitment to do it. Um, it looks straightforward. But most of the valves in a type A dissection are normal, as you know. And just narrowing the sinotubular junction down, you don't have to do a root usually. And those patients, even if they leave with mild or, or sometimes moderate AI, depending on their age, that's better than putting a prosthetic valve in there. Um, and then as far as the devices, the price, the ECMO, totally agree. It's a tour de force. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, uh, particularly in the setting of a type A dissection, there, it feels like a lot of people want to put stent grafts down the arch and descending and, you know, I don't, that stuff usually hasn't been necessary in the previous decades of work. Most people got by with just fixing the ascending and hemiarch, and only about 20 to 25% of those patients need, um, need further uh, operations in their lifetime. Adding the stent is just burning 15 grand now. But as far as that other fancy stuff, yeah, I think that that, that that's a real challenge. Uh, it's, it, it seems cool. You could, you could offer it to somebody, but, um, the reality is it's probably, you know, the, the cost may be prohibitive for a 85 or 90 year old who, whose lifespan, even with this procedure, they're going to stay in the hospital for a couple weeks and probably never will be the same. So I think it, you have to be selective. I don't, uh, very good. Great talk. Thank you very much. Uh, a lot of great work that y'all are doing there. When it comes to the type B dissection, and this may tie into some of your research with the, uh, grant that you're getting, how do we know which of the type Bs, uh, need to be grafted and, and stented? They come in, we control their blood pressure and they're asymptomatic. We leave them alone. But if they continue to have symptoms, we have a tendency to go ahead and try to graft those. Do you have an algorithm or thoughts on which ones we graft and which ones may be high risk for future problems that if we fixed them early on would be much, much more simpler? So obviously the ones that have malperfusion and rupture, it's a no-brainer. They should get stented. But you're talking about the uncomplicated type Bs. And there is data, as some of you know, that, quote, intractable pain, refractory hypertension has been shown to be a risk factor for more mortality compared to those who don't have that. And uh, so those I've tended to stent and be aggressive. Um, uh, there's an argument to be made to stent every single type B. Um, and, and I've been, uh, frankly, on that end of the spectrum. 
and I've had to rein it back actually <laughs> for my NIH grant to really study it because you can do these type Bs and, and really it's safe and low risk. Um, and if they're going to follow up, you can really follow them. And the stent graft will reduce their pain, as you know. So getting back to the real world scenario, an uncomplicated type B comes in. We They get their initial scan at time zero. 48 hours later, I re-image them. If there's any significant change in the false lumen size, perfusion, if there's a new lake of contrast, that from an anatomic morphology standpoint, they buy a stent. It takes, you know, takes all week now to, 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 to ramp up their blood pressure medicine safely, and they're still having pain. They may get a third scan, you know. These these are the ones, as you know, about 10 o'clock at night, you get the call, hey, man, he's having chest pain. And you're like, oh, did he convert to a type A or something, you know. They get another scan, and, and you see there. And so I would say refractory pain and hypertension, I buy into that, and I stent those people. They'll still leave with pain, but I think you'll reduce it. Um, unfortunately, so the, my grant, as you alluded to, we're going to come up with a risk score based on anatomic criteria from the CT scans, how large their primary intimal tear is, how large their false lumen is. Um, we're going to use some of the tissue we take from surgery biomechanical uh, testing, and then we have this fancy computational fluid dynamics, which I understand about that much of right now, pile all this stuff in with our Georgia Tech engineers and create a risk score, and hopefully that will give us guidance. But that is the, the question of what, what to do with those patients. We have a question. We also have a question on the chat as well after this. Thanks for a great talk. I, I was just wondering if you looked into your crystal ball how the training of the future um, fellows in training from interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, vascular surgery will evolve to sub-subspecialize in these techniques because this is advanced work and you talked about having a structuralist uh, coronary interventionalist, um, vascular surgery, cardiac surgery, all in one procedure, which, uh, is a huge amount of resources, especially at, uh, a smaller institution than Emory. Um, so how are we going to train future surgeons in the field to really have these interventional techniques? And then how are we going to keep surgeons with the bread and butter operative, uh, expertise as well, because it's hard to have both. Definitely. So I'm going to start backwards to front. That AMDS stent graph that I showed you, I think is going to be a, a valuable tool that every cardiac surgeon will be able to do. It's straightforward. Some of this branched arch technology, um, I think that a cardiac surgeon interested in this would need to do advanced endo training uh, and do an aortic fellowship dedicated uh, time or dedicated endo work like I had to do after my training to tackle that. I think trying to pick it up on the fly is, is a tough ask when you're going to hopefully be busy doing open surgery. Certainly, um, my vascular colleagues have moved forward doing fenestrated EVARs, and I don't do that. 
I don't pretend to do it. They've asked me to scrub. And frankly, my interests, you know, I wanted to be doing transcatheter work about 30% of the time and still maintain a very robust open practice. So for a, a cardiac surgeon to develop this, I think they, they're going to have to really spend time after training and then dedicate their time. And they may not in the future be doing, uh, you know, off pump coronary bypass that it's going to become more super specialized. Uh, and so how does that work in an area that uh, then when you don't have that, I think you're going to have to have teams um, to team up with vascular surgeon. Vascular surgery has gone the other way. Um, it's more challenging to find now young vascular surgeons who can actually come up, out, as we all know, and do open big, big surgery because they're so skilled and most of the vascular uh, training has gone endo. But but see, that's the beauty of my relationship with the vascular guys. They keep me fresh and up to date and allow me to, to, to maintain my endo skills, um, cannulating various branches of the aorta. I think cardiology is a huge, is going to be a huge person to rope into the space, um, uh, be it from a vascular surgeon standpoint or a cardiac surgeon standpoint, um, particularly as you move more proximal into the aorta. So, I think dedicated training, to answer the question, I think after your bread and butter, dedicated training. Certainly, TAVR is now becoming a rotation within our cardiac surgery training. Every one of our trainees has TAVR, so that gives them the basic wire skills, but certainly it's not enough to do this stuff. Any more questions on the floor? We do have one in the chat. Dr. Samady? Brad, can you hear me? Um, Honestly, fantastic work, and it's amazing that you're bringing together all these different sort of disciplines to try to answer questions. So where does um, sort of individualized care for this complex anatomy come in with technologies like 3D printing? Um, you know, I know that I, I think the vascular surgeons do have devices that are designed for their procedures. What about in the art space? Um, it seems like uh, some of the devices were sort of makeshift devices to try to fit an anatomy, but with 3D printing techniques now, are there not the possibilities to design and devices that are dedicated? And then the second part of it is you mentioned the effect of metallic stents and aorta um, and their impact. Are, is there any interest in any biodegradable materials and 3D printed? In this space? So, um, certainly the three, th one of these stent grafts, the Nexus device, uh, I have, uh, I'm one of the PIs on the trial. They will actually take your case and make a model of it to see if it's going to work. And surprisingly, I, it must not cost them that much. They do it a lot. So they'll do a feasibility and say this, to our best of our knowledge, will work through a polymer model. So that is going on to create individual devices. I know that, for instance, my partner in the structural heart uh, space, Vasilis Babliaros, gets all these weird congenital cases, and he, I think, has done an occasional 3D printing. Um, I don't know how widespread it is, but it's starting to uh, to to come online. Um, the Second part of your question, the adverse remodeling, I think it, you're going to hear a lot more about this, particularly as we put stent grafts into uh, 
in, in, into younger patients. So uh, there's an interesting paper in a trauma in the trauma literature about putting stent grafts in transections. So you have these young, otherwise healthy patients with no comorbidities, and they saw that in over a five-year uh, uh, period, their blood pressures went up and their their pulse pressure uh, uh, narrowed. So uh, there is, it's not without a price to put a stent graft and make that aorta non-compliant with respect to the heart in young patients. So uh, I got on this line of research and I'm starting to get into it. And I've thought about the biodegradable stent graft. I think the, the guy that, that was one of the first people to do abdominal stent grafts is probably from what I hear is leading the field, Juan Perotti has interest in this biodegradable stent graft or something that's more compliant, bottom line. I know of no none that exist, but I think there's some intellectual property already starting in that field. Um, and it's been a thought of mine, but it, it's I think it's far off so far. But yeah, you're on to it for sure. Suzanne? Uh, what do we have virtually questions-wise? Well, you may have answered this already, but um, Dr. Syed says, great talk. Can you speak about 3D printed models utility in this field? So I know that you yeah, touched on that. Yeah, I, I don't know a ton about it, but as I just mentioned, I think it's it's becoming reality. It's it's helping for sure. That's all we have on the chat, and it is six after eight. Well, any other questions? Okay, well, fantastic. Um, for uh, many of you will know that Brad and I will walk over and do a, an interview, formal interview that will be posted um, on our website uh, with some more in-depth questions. So please look out for that um, in Robbie's studio. Uh, but thank you all for coming. And Dr. Leshner, thank you so much for a fabulous. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. I just dropped it. <laughs> I'm a butterfingers this morning. I think I might. So the little clip there will go on the the button, and that's how it'll go off and on. I had it working, but there's. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I am happy to pay for that. Pay for a microphone, a piece. It's totally my 